you go into your shower feeling tired. But as soon as you reach for the Irish Spring, your day immediately gets better. That crisp, fresh, unmistakable Irish Spring scent zings your brain and awakens your senses. So when you finally emerge from the shower 37 minutes later, because you pay the water bill so you can stay in there as long as you want, you're ready to take on the day and smell great doing it. Irish Spring Body Wash and Bar Soap. Fresh, green, Irish. Shop now at a store near you. Calling all men. When was the last time you had a really good cry? A recent survey found that women cry on average five times a month, while men cry on average only once a month. Studies have shown that crying can support your mental, your physical, and your emotional health. I'm Radhi Devlukia, and on my podcast, A Really Good Cry, we embrace the real, the messy, and the beautiful. Listen to A Really Good Cry on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Tales from the Vault is a production of the NFL in partnership with iHeartRadio. Welcome to NFL Films Tales from the Vault. I'm your host, Hall of Fame journalist Andrea Kramer. This is a weekly podcast featuring conversations between the late president of NFL Films, Steve Sable, and some of the greatest figures in NFL history. We've dug into the vault to find original interviews, raw, unedited, and now you get to hear them in their entirety for the first time. Consider this show sort of like a time capsule, and I'm your tour guide providing context and insight into some of these lost treasures, as they like to call them, at NFL Films. Now, I don't want to say that we've saved the best for last. It's kind of like saying, which of your children do you like the most? But this is such a fascinating interview that we felt like we had to split it into two parts. So today, we head back to 1989 for part one of Steve Sable's epic interview with the late owner of the Raiders, Al Davis. Very simply, Al Davis was one of the most impactful characters in the history of the National Football League. He's the only executive in NFL history to be an assistant coach, head coach, general manager, commissioner, and of course, team owner. Remember, when he was commissioner of the AFL, he was mainly responsible for the merger between the NFL and the AFL. He had a profound impact on this league. Of course, there were some downsides to that too. As Raiders owner, he feuded with NFL commissioner Pete Rozelle and even sued the league and won. He was controversial. He was a lightning rod. But you know what? Any chance that Steve Sable had to sit down with Al Davis, he grabbed it. And just a little alert here, this interview features one of the most memorable lines in the history of NFL films. And I will come back to see if you have figured it out. By the way, not only was Davis an incredibly eloquent speaker, but you have to love this Southern-tinged Brooklyn accent that was so unique to Al Davis. So the following interview took place in 1989, the year that Davis became the first owner to hire a black head coach in Art Shell. But make no mistake, this was just the third of his firsts, if you will. After hiring the first Latino head coach in Tom Flory's, and of course, the first female chief executive in Amy Trask. And can we note that this was before the league had to mandate that minorities had to be interviewed or hired. Al Davis was always a trailblazer and had very specific ideas about how the game should be played and what kind of players should be donning the silver and black. Steve and Al talk about quarterbacks. There's Daryl LaMonica, the Mad Bomber, the Snake, Kenny Stabler, George Blanda, and Jim Plunkett. Of course, they also have to touch on safety Jack Tatum and pretty much any famous Raider from the 60s, 70s, and 80s, including, of course, the great late John Madden. So let's go to the vault for Steve Sable and Al Davis. Let's just talk about your theory of offensive football and, and the way okay. you've done it. It's really clear. You start with a, a basic premise and then you can go off in, in any direction. Because remember, I can can edit this. And No, no, sure. Okay. I just wanted to go now... To, to explain basically and then maybe expand your theory of offensive, of offensive sure. football. Sure. And then we can go to defense a little yeah, bit. Attack, pressure. Yeah. 
bumping okay. around. I'm just right now, take it off and just, just if you were going to sit here and talk to me about sure. football. We're running. Go ahead. Well, from day one, uh, when I came here in 1963, and I had had the advantage uh, from early uh, 1960 through 1962 to be with Sid Gilman at San Diego, but I had certain philosophies of my own that had to be come part of whatever I was to do, and that was, number one, what I call the vertical game. We were going to stretch the field vertically. When we came out of the huddle, we weren't looking for first downs. We didn't want to move the chains. We wanted touchdowns. We wanted the big play, the quick strike. And it's number one to say you want to do that. It's number two to say that you have the players to do it, but it's number three to do it, to do it on first down of any football game for that defense that you're playing against for those cornerbacks who play out there on the corners to know that the Raiders are coming at you, they're coming at you on top, and they've got the speed to do it, and they will do it. It's like having the bomb and being willing to drop it. And uh, so that was the foremost thing. Number two, I wanted power. Big people. Not a, a diversification of a running attack, but a power running attack to develop toughness, to develop physicalness. And then with the strike of the big play, the vertical game, that was rate of football. Uh, the adage that goes around in professional football, and I hear everyone say it, take what they give you. Take what they give you. They tell quarterbacks, read the defense, hit the open man. Well, that all sounds good to everybody, but I always went the other way. We're going to take what we want. That no design or no location of defensive people on a blackboard or just because they're lined up out there will stop us from taking what we want. They have to prove to us that they can stop us on the field. What about the, the one who has to deliver the bomb? What were you looking for in terms of a, of a quarter? Well, I think uh, one great interesting statistic about the Raiders is that we have played in the Super Bowl. We're the only team in professional football in the 60s, the 70s, and the 80s. And in each decade, a different quarterback has led us to the Super Bowl. Uh, in the 60s, it was uh, LaMonica and the great George Blanda. In the 70s, it was uh, Snake Stabler. And in the 80s, it was uh, Jim Plunkett. So I think that shows a little bit that the system, which we've consistently used, we haven't changed much, we haven't deviated much, the players have changed, but they're all similar players to play the same positions that we started with, with the same concept. But the quarterbacks have changed. And uh, uh, LaMonica obviously was a great vertical thrower, a great deep thrower. Uh, uh, Blanda was probably the greatest clutch player to ever play professional football. Stabler was the most accurate passer of his time and might not have had as uh, great a deep ball as we'd like, but was so accurate and could move the chains that uh, we adjusted a little bit to him, but there were a couple years where he and Branch were unstoppable. And then, of course, you come to Plunkett, who was just a tremendously great vertical thrower, big play thrower, not a high percentage passer. Of all the passes I've named to you, the only one who was a high percentage passer was Stable, uh, Kenny. We've never uh, uh, been greatly concerned about percentage throwing. Uh, we've been concerned about two things, no interceptions and touchdowns. We're not interested in the 60 to 70 percent throws, although Stable was uh, a, a great percentage thrower. When Stabler, an interesting thing about him is that he, to, to the fan, the perception was the long bomb. And yet Stabler didn't really have that long, strong of an arm. No. How were able to, to still implant that fear with a quarterback who really, by admission by many people who played with him, did not have that strong arm? And yet when you think of Stabler, I think of Stabler to branch and the long bomb, and yet he really... Well, the great thing about Kenny Stabler was that he might not have had... Uh, the, the great deep-throwing ability that uh, LaMonica would have or Plunkett would have or maybe even Schrader would have, but what he had was a great insight, a great ability to make the big play when he needed to. And when he needed his long, his long strike, he would get it. And we had put so much fear into everybody with it that from time to time he would throw it, hit it, and then get away from it for a while. But he was so, so accurate in the intermediate ranges in the 15 to 17 and 18 yards, and he was fearless. And uh, he just made it happen. But uh, when you ask me to rate them as far as long bomb vertical throwing, no, I don't think he would be in that classification. But I, I think it's similar today. Uh, uh, Montana, who is very much like Stabler, is not a great uh, deep thrower. 
but yet he can make the big play deep and uh, does it continuously to Rice when he needs it. And that was, that was stable. The only, the only difference would be uh, uh, that uh, we, we wanted to take it more often, we looked for it more often, and that was our game plan more often, as opposed maybe to the 49ers who want to move the chains and control the ball. What about, let's switch over to, uh, to, to defense, but now we just discussed the offensive theory. What about defensive theory, looking at it from the other, other, the, the other perspective, the other side of the ball? Well, well, well the defensive theory uh, evolved early on in the 60s uh, to, number one, pressure. Put pressure on the pocket. Put pressure on the quarterback. Diversification of defense and the utilization of your corners in a bump-and-run principle. We used to call it the press. We, we got the idea from John Wooden when he had his great zone press in the 60s with his great basketball teams where they picked you up as soon as you took the ball out and they pressured you and put, didn't let you bring that ball up the court free. And we got the idea and we called it press and I think it was Don Shuler who started using the word bump and run. And so we changed to bump and run. And uh, that's the way we wanted our corners to play. We wanted to attack the pocket. One thing we do believe we do believe that this is a game psychologically of intimidation and of fear. I don't mean uh, cowardly fear, but fear. And I think this, that somewhere within the first five to ten plays of a game, the other team's quarterback must go down, and he must go down hard. And that alone sets a tempo for a game. Uh, we think it serves as, as a tremendous uh, intimidation factor in the ensuing week when the next coach sits down with his quarterback and they start looking at the games of the Raiders and they start talking about coverages. But that quarterback, when he's sitting there watching those coverages, he's also seeing that other guy's quarterback going down. And he wants to see that. He says, rerun that. He wants to see the protection. And I think we start to focus on the fact that the Raiders are going to come after you, they're going to knock you down, and there's going to be relentless pressure on the corners. You're not going to be able to get those ball to your receivers the way you'd like to in the spots that are diagrammed on the blackboard. And the idea is to disrupt the offense, disrupt the flow of the offense, disrupt the continuity. And we have to know, we have to know the other coach as well as we have to know the team. We have to know the guy who calls the plays. If you play the 49ers, the great Bill Walsh, three Super Bowls in the 80s, if you don't know how his mind works, if you don't know him through and through, you've got a problem when you play the 49ers. And I guarantee you, if you knock Montana down early, when you're playing the 49ers about the first five plays of the game, you're knocking Bill Walsh down too. And that's the idea of this game. Okay, so I warned you I'd be back to test you. Did you hear the line? One of the most famous lines in NFL films history. And please excuse me because I cannot invoke Al Davis's tone, but the quarterback must go down and he must go down hard. Does anything epitomize Al Davis and his philosophy on defense more than that? And by the way, as an aside, I really chuckled when Davis noted his pride that Bill Walsh's first job in pro football was as an assistant for the Raiders. Because for Davis, all signs always pointed back to the silver and black. Now, speaking of those great Raiders teams, one of the foremost intimidators was safety Jack Tatum. Nicknamed the assassin, Tatum hit like a linebacker and without remorse. But in a preseason game in 1978, a hit by Tatum paralyzed Patriots wide receiver Darryl Stingley in what remains to this day one of the most devastating on-field injuries in NFL history. How about Jack, Jack Tatum? Let's, how does he figure it? I think Jack Tatum uh, was probably the most feared player of his time in the secondary. I don't think there's anybody else. Of all the young players we talk to in the country today and all the players who played during the decades when Jack Tatum played the uh, early 70s and the early 80s, and even the young college players today, when they talk about someone who personifies toughness on the football field, they talk about Jack Tatum. And uh, Jack Tatum was a truly great player from Ohio State. I know his career ended a little bit 
in uh, controversy because of the hit he made on Daryl Stingley and unfortunately uh, uh, affected uh, Daryl's uh, uh, physical being. But uh, it was an honest hit. It was played on the football field. And, and, and truthfully, football is a violent game. It's a vicious struggle to be number one. It's a vicious game among men who uh, uh, give their bodies. And Tatum, as I say, was probably the most feared player of his time. I know we got him. In 1971, we took him number one. There were two other players on the blackboard at the time that Jordan Madden and I and the rest of the staff discussed. But we felt our team was starting to lack a little toughness. And we felt Tatum could bring back some of that toughness. Plus, in our conference, there was a team that was starting to come on as a dominating team. And they had a left end, a receiver, that was starting to dominate our conference with one play called the slant pass. And we had to change our philosophy on that slant pass. We had to stop going for the ball, and we had to start going for the man. And it's ironic, that guy was from Ohio State too, and Tatum and he had some great confrontations. Uh, his name is Paul Warfield for the Miami Dolphins. Could you talk about the influence that Tatum had on, on, on just that, the, the, the influence that he had on the game, this one safety? Guys would just see him play and they wouldn't, they wouldn't run the slant. Well, they wouldn't run the slant and a lot of teams would not come into the post. And I, I know a lot of players that uh, after they retired or that I would talk to would say, uh, I know one player said that uh, in his coach's meeting that they put up a play on the board where he was going in the post and he just stood up and he said, I'm not going in there. And uh, I'll, I'll never forget the hit in the uh, uh, 77 Super Bowl against the Minnesota Vikings that Jack Tatum put on uh, Sammy White. It was just uh, vicious. And I think that what we did because of Tatum too, uh, we took out the, uh, the next step, no more spearing with the helmet, with the head, uh, because uh, uh, he was vicious with it. And he was just a truly great player and a great person and uh, a great contributor uh, to the greatness of the Raiders. While we're on this subject of contact, to me, that's the essence of football is contact. What is your feeling about, I mean, the, 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 the contact, the sport? I mean, is that sometimes overdone or is that what you said? I mean, that's, that's the game of football. That's, what, that's the essence of the game. Well, the, the essence of the game, really, Steve, unfortunately, in our culture, there's only one thing that matters is who wins. You have to win. The winner writes the history book. The winner gets the Super Bowl trophy. The winner's the genius. The winner's the highest paid player. You have to win in our culture. I've never seen anything like it. Even the guy who comes in second in the Super Bowl is a big loser. And uh, the game is a vicious game. It's a violent game. And now you can't win a Super Bowl today. I say this sincerely. We're the only AFC team to win a Super Bowl in the 80s because winning Super Bowls is based on power and physicalness. And I admit that the 49ers don't have an offense that's devised for power, but Roger Craig makes it power by the way he plays. And uh, Bill Walsh learned early, and I'm pretty proud of this, that Bill's first job in professional football was an assistant coach with the Raiders. Bill learned early that you gotta play tough and you gotta have pressure defense. You gotta attack and you gotta be tough, otherwise you're not gonna win Super Bowls. And if you look at the great teams of the 80s, the 70s, all the teams that won Super Bowls, there might be an exception. Tough defense, physical defense. If you ever thought that the rogue swashbuckling image of the Raiders was just something that happened, it's pretty clear that it was no accident. Davis's just win baby mantra defined his legacy, but really for him, it could have been just intimidate baby. And back in the 70s and 80s, you could. The violence of football has largely been legislated out of the game today. It's still a collision sport, but the headhunting and deliberate attempts to injure or at least inflict pain are no longer the objective. When we come back, Al and Steve get into Davis's numerous innovations in the game of football. You'll want to learn about these. Stay tuned. You go into your shower feeling tired, but as soon as you reach for the Irish Spring, your day immediately gets better. That crisp, fresh, unmistakable Irish Spring scent zings your brain and awakens your senses. So when you finally emerge from the shower 37 minutes later because you pay the water bill so you can stay in there as long as you want, you're ready to take on the day and smell great doing it. 
Irish Spring Body Wash and Bar Soap. Fresh, green, Irish. Shop now at a store near you. Calling all men. When was the last time you had a really good cry? A recent survey found that women cry on average five times a month, while men cry on average only once a month. Studies have shown that crying can support your mental, your physical, and your emotional health. I'm Radhi Devlukia, and on my podcast, A Really Good Cry, we push against typical societal norms. We embrace the real, the messy, and the beautiful, providing a space for raw, unfiltered conversations that celebrate vulnerability and allow you to tune in, to share, connect, and find comfort together. Our tears come as a way to let us release what we can't hold anymore. I trust that no one's ever going to find out those deepest, darkest secrets. It's been a hard day. She walks out, and this is what she looks like. <laughs> Listen to A Really Good Cry with me, Radhi Devlukia, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to NFL Films Tales from the Vault. There's only been a handful of owners in the history of the league who also were head coaches. That includes Burt Bell, Paul Brown, George Hallis, and of course, Al Davis. As we heard in the first segment, Davis wanted to play a very specific brand of football, which meant that he had a very specific philosophy of team building. Now, if you remember a couple of weeks ago when we had Tom Brady on, I pointed out that what Brady was talking about was a clinic in leadership. Well, what we're about to hear, in my opinion, is a lesson in developing culture, knowing what you want that to mean and what you want that to be. Because I think that word gets thrown around so much, but what does it really mean in practicality? We're about to hear from Al Davis what it meant to be a Raider. You look back on on, on your career in the NFL and in the AFL, is there one innovation that you're particularly proud of? Is there one you you, you could pinpoint that you're really proud of? Maybe it was instituting a rules change or something that maybe we haven't even discussed. I just... No, I I think... uh... Uh, to be real honest, uh, if there's anything we've ever done that I'm particularly proud of, about well, myself or about uh, innovation, I, w- I would have to say that the uh, perpetuation of the greatness of the Raiders to take a professional football team and give it a distinct characteristic that's different from all others and have a total around the country the fan base and the fan support that we have, and not only around the country as we've learned in recent years in the Far East, and uh, in the European countries, in London, uh, Raider fan clubs, I, I just think that's, that's the thing that has intrigued me the most. Now, if you talk about uh, a specific innovation, a way of playing the game, is that... Yeah, I was thinking about that. Well, I, I think there are so many characteristics that I, I lump it into one, but I think it's, uh, it goes back to the perpetuation of the Raiders as a distinct, different entity from all other professional football teams and that one has endured over a period of time in our great records and uh, uh, our great coaches. and, and uh, What is that distinctiveness? Now, can you put your finger on that? We're talking about a mystique, a charisma. A dis- can you describe what, that, what this thing is that makes the Raiders different? What it is about this organization that is different, that does attract the fans, that does have the Pistons wearing your, your jersey? What is it that you have struck here with the public or something that makes people gravitate toward your 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 style or your team. Well, <laughs> number one, we win, and you have to win to get any adulation or uh, any any uh, glory in our society. Uh, number two, just there are several characteristics of the team. I I, I think uh, the uh, fear, the intimidation, the mystique about it, the quick strike, the touchdowns, the great players who've played here, the great coaches, uh, the great games we've played in. Uh, the fact that off the field, uh, we, we are mavericks per se. We, we do our own thing. We don't want to hurt others. We want to dominate the environment rather than just uh, be a part of the environment. And uh, uh, our organization operates differently. Uh, it's a small, close-knit organization, a total loyalty for many years. Uh, uh, we, we have a certain code about we don't have a chain of command within our organization. When you think of a, of a, of a, of a big organization, you think a chain of command. We don't have that. We have a self-starters, uh, no fear of failure. I, I, I would just like to hope 
that the dream I had when I came in 1963 to Oakland to build the finest organization in professional sports, all those things I, I would hope that would come. Uh, I didn't care as much about uh, being respected as I cared from the standpoint of winning about being feared and being imitated. And then respect could come after that. Let's go back to, to something that you had discussed earlier about leadership. And, and that's something that obviously that, that no, there could never be a great organization without great leadership. Now, from your perspective, what, are, what is the key ingredient? We're talking about just to talk about leadership. What's the key ingredient to be a great leader or necessary for, for, for leadership? Well, I personally have always felt that there, there were two underlying philosophies that have governed my approach to it. One is uh, a great person is someone who can inspire in others the will to be great. He didn't necessarily have to be great himself at it, but if he can motivate people into doing great things for singleness of purpose, unity of purpose, common goals, I think that's great leadership. That's number one. And number two, within this great leadership, when you're dealing with people, when you have to lead men, you don't do unto others as you would have others do unto you. You do unto them in a paramilitary situation as they want to be done unto. You have to treat them the way they want to be treated. You have to know their cultures because we all come from different places. You have to know how they were brought up. You have to know their likes and dislikes. You have to know their families. These are the things I think that make for great leadership. And then you have to create an environment where everyone has faith in the environment, that this environment has a will to win, that this environment wants to do right by you, that this environment is going to be fair, that this environment doesn't have any concern as to who you are or where you came from, but rather, can you contribute? Can you make a contribution to the greatness of the Raiders? Now, what about problems and leadership and problems? And, and you had a great expression for that. I forget how you said it. Well, what I said was that in our day and age, if you're going to lead, if you're going to lead an organization, if you're going to come to work every day, first of all, you have to have a commitment to excellence. Number two, it should be a way of life for you. And number three, problems are normal. Problems are normal. You don't treat them as special cases. You treat them just like you treat them as an everyday occurrence. And then rather than deal with emergencies as they occur, you try to develop plans to forestall emergencies or to deal with them when they do occur. And that's what I meant that uh, if you came to work every day and responded to every player's inequities or idiosyncrasies or your secretaries or you, 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 couldn't, you couldn't operate with the, the modus operandi today. Uh, you just couldn't do it. You have to keep your eye on what you're trying to do. You have to move them. You have to motivate them. You have to inspire them. Some you have to drive. It's all different, but you're the leader, and it falls back on you. The responsibility is on you if you're going to lead, if you're going to accept it. And you can't rationalize and say, he didn't do this or he didn't do Occasionally you can do that amongst your friends, but you can't take it out on them. It's your responsibility to get them to do it. One of the things to me that, that's really fascinating about the success of the Raiders is that, as you said, the three decades. But when you look in those three decades, I don't know whether there have been three more diverse decades in American life when you have the 60s, the 70s. the 70s, and the 80s, and you're dealing with young people and where the, <clears throat> the most volatile changes. How did, I mean, how did you perceive that you had the 60s was one, then the 70s, and you've still been able to motivate people, these young people? I mean, is that something that, that you must be, that you have, must have the organization so attuned to that the way it's different now, in, like when we're talking about Lombardi, right. Lombardi came in the 70s, he, if he'd have stayed the way he was, he might not have been as successful, That's probably right. wouldn't have. He wouldn't. How have you been able to be so sensitive to that over the years that because that, 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 you're dealing with, and the teams change, the kids change, and then at times change, and yet you said in your, your, your philosophy before the football, you haven't changed. But there's something, Al, that must have changed in your ability to handle the people, to motivate the people. Maybe I'm, I'm back to the leadership. Well, I think it is that because in the early 60s, I realized that it no longer was just a Spartan, authoritarian approach. You had to adjust to the players. You had to change your system of activities 
just a little bit to adjust to the plays. You had to learn about them. No longer could we treat them the way we wanted to be treated. We had to treat them the way they wanted to be treated. We had to know more about them. And I've always been uh, big on environment, big on culture, and uh, we've always studied real hard as to what's going on. Obviously, I know what went on in the 60s and, and obviously the 70s. The only thing this organization might have been slow on when it came to the utilization of our personnel and people was the drug thing. I didn't understand drugs in the late 70s, couldn't understand it, couldn't fathom it, and it was only after one or two players who we were able to save that I realized that the drugs had to be dealt with in only one way, and that's total, total police state on top of them. Don't ask them. Don't inspect them. Don't think that they can do it by themselves. You almost have to be on top of them every day to win that battle. And uh, that concerns me greatly about our culture. I've said it, the genocide of American youth. Uh, I'm probably more worried about that than anything else that's going on other than life or death health. But I really feel that uh, we're losing the battle. This country is. We talk it. There are ways to beat it, but we're not even coming close to it. And uh, uh, but I, I, I appreciate the fact that you think that we've been able to, in all three decades, to motivate men, which we think we have. But I think it starts with the environment. I think kids all over America know. Uh, television's been a big advent, you know, that's communication, NFL films, the radio. But I think kids all over America know that the Raiders, what they stand for, that there's a sense of fairness there, there's a sense of honesty there, there's a will to win. There's a commitment to excellence. It's sad. There's a pride and poise. And uh, that uh, if they do come here, that uh, we're going to adjust to them a little bit, but within the framework of an entire organization with a will to win. To be a successful leader, I, I have a quote here, and I, I'm not sure who to attribute it to, but <laughs> to, be a, to be successful, especially in a business as competitive as this, do you have to be ruthless in a sense? I mean, is there a certain ruthlessness in your as being a leader? Is that something that uh, that you have to exercise that talent? Is that necessary to be a good leader? Well, first of all, this is a business that involves a vicious struggle, vicious to be number one. Everyone now wants to be number one. We used to have some teams in our league that weren't as concerned about being number one, but the pressures of the press, the media, and the fan has made everyone want to be number one. So it's a vicious struggle. And uh, within the confines of great leadership, yes, I think that uh, uh, every great, I'm not talking about a good leader now, every great leader has some ruthlessness to him. And you have to use it at times. And uh, uh, the important thing is not to use it to hurt people, but to use it for the good of the group, to get the goals done, to win. You know, ruthlessness, by itself is a bad sounding word, but ruthfulness to get the end result that everyone wants without hurting people is not a bad sounding word. If I know someone is on drugs and I'm ruthless with them, that's not bad if I can save them. So when you start to use the word, you have to tell me the context that you're using it in. Hell yes, I think ruthlessness is uh, an attribute of a great leader. He has to have the ability to use it at the right time, not to hurt, but to help, and to help the group, and to win. Can you think of any time in your, in your career that you had to exercise that, other than the drug thing that you, that, that, that you knew, say, boy, this is, I'm going to have to be a real hard ass in this, but for the good of the organization, I'm going to have to do it. Yes, I've done it several times, and uh, uh, at the time that I did it, uh, I was chastised publicly a great deal. But uh, both players, truly great players, uh, after it happened, years later, admitted that I had done the right thing. And uh, uh, both times, uh, we won Super Bowls. And uh, also, there have been times uh, where I've had to go into a locker room and take a gun away from a player because uh, he had threatened some other players. And there, I don't know if I was ruthless or crazy, but I did it. 
I, I, I think uh, throughout my life, I've had to use that particular word. Now, I like when you use the word ruthless with uh, brilliant and genius, and I'm willing to take all three. But just uh, us uh, depicting this one word concerns me a little. But yes, I've used it throughout my life and throughout my uh, uh, years as a, as a coach and a, a, as a commissioner even, and as a general manager, yes. And uh, uh, sure, uh, as a commissioner, I use it. You have to be. Other words that have been used to describe you, cunning, devious. Does that bother you to be to hear those two words described, to hear those words attributed to you from someone when Al Davis, in addition, successful, there are other articles, the most hated winner, uh, cunning, devious, and obviously, you, but does that bother you when you hear, or, or that's, or that is not? Just, just you a, could say Churchill was devious, Roosevelt was mm -hmm. devious. I mean, you can go through history and use those same words mm -hmm. to other people. I just wonder, personally, when you heard that, does that bother you? No, I, I say this. If they were to use the word uh, devious just by itself, it would be annoying for the moment. But when you throw it in, they like to throw it in with, as I said, brilliant, genius, winner, devious, ruthless, cunning. No, I'll take it because I think, uh, uh, and I don't rationalize it by saying uh, greatness needs that, but I believe that uh, uh, you have to have those qualities if you're going to lead men for the good of the group when you're in a competitive aspect of life. Now, if I were a scientist, or if I were just a medical doctor, I might resent those words. But when you're in a competitive aspect, if you're the President of the United States, if you're the Secretary of State, if you're in a competitive aspect of life, representing a group and trying to see that that group gets ahead, yeah, I think you need all those qualities and thank God that uh, you're able to have them and use them. Again, when you have those qualities, it's how you use them that's important. If you use them for the good of your group, to help your group, not to hurt people, well, I think it's great. Only Al Davis can take the adjectives cunning and devious and turn them into attributes. Look, Davis had his hands in all facets of the team, but make no mistake, he was an incessant film watcher. It was all about the product on the field. In fact, if you were coaching for the Raiders, you were going to be challenged and tested by a man who, in most cases, had more experience coaching than you did. He was a tremendous resource for young coaches like John Madden, who benefited from that partnership with a Super Bowl title. And it's not a coincidence that younger coaches like John Gruden, the first time around, and even Mike Shanahan, who chafed at the quote-unquote interference, were short-lived with the Raiders. When we come back... Just Win Baby, The Origin Story. Stay tuned. You go into your shower feeling tired, but as soon as you reach for the Irish Spring, your day immediately gets better. That crisp, fresh, unmistakable Irish Spring scent zings your brain and awakens your senses. So when you finally emerge from the shower 37 minutes later because you pay the water bill so you can stay in there as long as you want, you're ready to take on the day. And smell great doing it. Irish Spring Body Wash and Bar Soap. Fresh, green, Irish. Shop now at a store near you. Calling all men. When was the last time you had a really good cry? A recent survey found that women cry on average five times a month, while men cry on average only once a month. Studies have shown that crying can support your mental, your physical, and your emotional health. I'm Radhi Devlukia, and on my podcast, A Really Good Cry, we push against typical societal norms. We embrace the real, the messy, and the beautiful, providing a space for raw, unfiltered conversations that celebrate vulnerability and allow you to tune in, to share, connect, and find comfort together. Our tears come as a way to let us release what we can't hold anymore. I trust that no one's ever going to find out those deepest, darkest secrets. Yeah. It's been a hard day. She walks out, and this is what she looks like. Oh my gosh, give her an Oscar. <laughs> Listen to A Really Good Cry with me, Radhi Devlukia, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And now, congratulations for putting this game together. You and the Raider management put together a great, great football team, and they sure showed it today. Congratulations. Oh, my God. 
Just win, baby. Has there ever been a mantra more identifiable with one team than Al Davis's signature phrase said here following the Raiders' 1983 Super Bowl win over Washington? It was particularly sweet for Davis, who was receiving the trophy from NFL Commissioner Pete Rozelle, with whom Davis had just had a lengthy court battle over Davis's desire and ability to move the team to Los Angeles. Davis just won, baby. How did the just win baby uh, evolve? Because that just by itself seems very simple. But the way you evolved to it, to me, gives the meaning, gives that phrase a lot more impact. I'd like you to explain how that you got to that, that just win baby. Well, you know, our, our philosophy here of the Raiders is not to be afraid of failure. Uh, for even all our organizational people who work in administration, public relations, if you're going to be a self-starter in life and you're going to be uh, uh, afraid of failure or a fear of losing, you're not really going to be a, a positive person, a positive thinker as far as I'm concerned. And uh, I felt that what was starting to permeate professional football uh, were three axioms. One, take what they give you. Two, don't make mistakes. And three, run the ball to set up the passing game. Well, first of all, I don't think that's true because I think you have to throw deep early. You have to attack early. You have to show somebody that you can go up on top early and put the fear of God in them. Number two, as I told you before, I don't think it's take what they give you. I think you have to have the ability to take what you want. And number three, I don't think it's don't make mistakes. I think everyone makes mistakes today the way we're judged, we're so closely scrutinized, it's almost impossible not to make a few, other than you and I, Steve. But uh, I, I, think, I think you make mistakes, and I want it to permeate our football team was just win. Play hard. Try not to make mistakes. But don't worry about mistakes, because there's only one thing that counts. Just win. And I think if you look at every great football game, every great team that wins a Super Bowl, you hear how they played a perfect game or they did this and that. But God Almighty, they made mistakes. They're just not as noticeable when you win. Of all the, the things that have been written about you and, and, and been said in the media, which is probably more than anybody in the game today, what do you think is the biggest misconception the public has of you? First of all, it's a difficult question. No, I, I don't think I really don't think it's difficult because, first of all, uh, what I want to do and what I wanted to do, I think I've I think I've done. I, as I said, I wanted to build the finest organization in professional sports. I wanted to have the best records. I wanted to do all the things as a kid that I dreamed of. And I thank God and my parents that they've given me inspiration that God or has given me the ability to do all these things, to build the Raiders into this, that we would get the recognition that we do, and then I would get what you might call the copy that I do. Now, I think the public has tremendous respect for the Raiders, and I think they know that I win, that uh, I've had the opportunity in the past few years, I know you know this, to go to the Hall of Fame six times, I'll go a seventh, that's more than anyone in the history of professional sports, to present seven guys at the Hall of Fame, so there must be some loyalty there with the players. Uh, my coaches, John Madden, truly great coach, won over 100 games in 10 years, close friend, Tom Flores, close friend. I, I think that there are a few press guys who uh, I have been willing to take on in my time because I think they get out of line, they get out of hand, and they shouldn't. And I don't think that they should dictate uh, as to what's done in professional sports. I think they should report what's happening, not, not what we should do. And I, I think uh, that uh, I'm, I'm pretty satisfied with my reputation. I think there have been uh, approximately eight to 10 sports books and uh, written in the past uh, six to 10 years. I get a chapter in each book and every one of them has been, uh, you know, of course I'm selling myself here and I don't like to do that. It's been total complimentary. Well, I, just, I think you're thinking no. through the question. question. I yeah. But even even Howard, who I have great admiration for, Howard Cosell, gave me a chapter, and uh, his approach to me was that uh, I was a young Cassius, I was a maverick, and that was his observation of, of, of Al Davis. There is one thing that disturbed me for a short while. In 1980, when we left Oakland, 
to come to Los Angeles. And I had a great deal of love for Oakland because I had lived there some 17, 18 years. And uh, we had done tremendous there. The fans were terrific. We filled that stadium, and that's where we built the Raiders. There's, there's no question about it. I've never denied it and looked forward to it and memorized have great memories, great nostalgia, but the press in the Oakland area who lied to the public, tried to depict me as the bad guy, when in essence we proved in court, and I know we don't want to get into court cases, that it was Roselle, the National Football League. And now the, the ironic thing about it, it's funny how time is a, a great healer of wounds, the fans up in the Bay Area, the will of the people, and you never know what's going to happen want the Raiders back, and there's no denying it. I, I think when we played there this year, this past season, played the 49ers, and to hear the roar of the crowd, uh, the Raider fans in that stadium, it was just unbelievable. And, and uh, I, I think that, that that thing has changed. The truth has come out, and I kind of feel vindicated on that. And it was through the courtroom and, and through the emotion of fans that they realized that the, uh, the National Football League and some of the politicians in Oakland messed up that deal and they shouldn't have done it. So uh, other, other than that, I, I don't think when you're a focal point of our society today that you can come away unscathed. It's, it's, it's impossible. And I think if overall the good, the tremendous amount of uh, popular and what you would call good publicity outweighs the, the negativeness, why you just accept that as a fact of our life, just like problems are normal, that's normal. Interesting thing about the, the scouting that the Raiders have done, and there's no computers, there's no the the vertical leaps, the IQ test, and and you've been so successful bringing players. What? Why haven't you you used all these so-called uh, sophisticated computerized things in your scouting? And what do you rely on when you pick a player? What are the things that you look for? Well, well, number one, as I as I tell you, I'm a great believer in that you just don't pick players for the way they play now. You pick players for the way they're gonna be two, three years down the road after you train them, after you fit them into your system, after you have an idea of what you want at every particular position and our consistency in this particular time of great players at certain positions is known by all our scouts. They know them personally because most everyone who scouts for us played for us or worked for us. So they know what we're looking for at left tackle. We're looking for Art Shell. We can't always find it, but that's what we're looking for. At left end, we're looking for Cliff Branch. We can't always find it, but that's what we're looking for. But uh, I never have believed that uh, IQ was the determining factor who's a great football player. In fact, uh, when I was young, uh, I often wondered about education. I've always thought that... Uh, Bright people teach themselves. I always thought there ought to be a place for the unintelligent to go to school, and that maybe our educational system is a little off at times that we don't teach the unintelligent. And I've always thought that the Raiders, if we're gonna be great leaders and great teachers, we can take players who have a will, who wanna be great, who may not be as smart as you'd like them to be, but we can teach them and coach them and get them to do things the right way, even if they don't have uh, great IQs. And then I have found through the years that uh, certain kids uh, who have street IQ, street instincts, may not have basic IQ, may be afraid of tests, and don't do as well on them because uh, uh, just the fear of failure. Uh, let's be honest about it. One of the great players of, of our last 10 years, Lester Hayes, came to the Raiders with the label of being a dummy. But no one knew that he stuttered. And the reason I can talk about it is because he, after persuasion, admitted it his problem, went to place and worked on it and, and came along excellent as far as stuttering goes, talked very well. And, uh, but everyone thought he was a dummy because he wouldn't talk. He was afraid of taking tests. But as far as uh, street smarts, and football smarts and football instinct. I don't know if you're ever going to find a smarter one. And uh, as far as contract negotiations, he had the instincts of, uh, of uh, someone from Brooklyn that uh, I might have grown up with. But uh, I, I just think it's overrated. I think all that stuff is, I think you have to be able to run fast. 
unfortunately. Once in a while, you come across someone who can play great and make a contribution that doesn't have speed. But this is a game of speed and size and power and viciousness and violence and fear. And uh, uh, But I've never been a big believer on, on that total IQ because I think that's our job. As tunnel-visioned as Davis was about football, he was knowledgeable and certainly opinionated about a variety of subjects, as exemplified by his digression on the American educational system. And in terms of football, he was willing to learn aspects from other sports as well. Earlier in the interview, we heard him reference the press defense from John Wooden's great UCLA teams. In fact, Davis loved women's basketball, what he thought was almost a purer form of the game and he could learn various aspects from that sport as well. As his protege, Amy Trask, told me of her longtime boss and mentor, he was not only intelligent, he was wise. Next week, we bring you part two of this truly remarkable interview with Davis and Steve Sable. They'll talk about Davis's upbringing, his thoughts on John Madden, and what he wanted his legacy to be. It's the season finale of Tales from the Vault. You won't want to miss it. Thanks for listening. I'm Andrea Kramer. You go into your shower feeling tired, but as soon as you reach for the Irish Spring, your day immediately gets better. That crisp, fresh, unmistakable Irish Spring scent zings your brain and awakens your senses. So when you finally emerge from the shower 37 minutes later because you pay the water bill so you can stay in there as long as you want, you're ready to take on the day. And smell great doing it. Irish Spring Body Wash and Bar Soap. Fresh, green, Irish. Shop now at a store near you. Calling all men. When was the last time you had a really good cry? A recent survey found that women cry on average five times a month, while men cry on average only once a month. Studies have shown that crying can support your mental, your physical, and your emotional health. I'm Radhi Devlukia, and on my podcast, A Really Good Cry, we embrace the real, the messy, and the beautiful. Listen to A Really Good Cry on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.